Content warning. Violence, sexual assault, and mention of suicide. Take care when listening. Hey, old-timey, crimey listeners. What we are about to do here is start a little something new. Amber and I are going to still be telling you tales from true crime history, but we're starting a little mini-series here on the regular feed So every other week, instead of getting a standalone story, for a little while, you're going to be getting stories uh, ongoing about a set of cases that happened in the 1920s and a little bit into the 1930s, and they all happened on Lover's Lane. Are they connected? Are they not? That's something we're going to be delving into here. Is this going to result in us solving a murder? That's something we're probably not going to be doing here. (laughs) Yeah, as much as we would like to, it's probably not likely. It's probably not going to happen. But we think you're really going to be fascinated by this case as we are already. It definitely got people interested in uh, the time period that it was happening and uh, somewhat terrified, too. There was a lot of hysteria going on. So there's there's a lot to it, and we hope you really enjoy this little mini-series, as we're calling it. It'll be available here on the Old Timey Crimey feed, and it's also going to have its own feed called Murders on Lover's Lane, so you can subscribe to that if you just want to get those as well. You can also get these early release on our Patreon at the $5 level in addition to the regular bonus content every week. So patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey is where you would go for that. And without further ado, let's dive in. Sometimes, the places we go to be alone together are the most dangerous places of all. That's not a judgment or a statement of blame. It's a simple fact that the time when we are in the most danger is when we are by ourselves, with no one to defend us, no one to hear us scream. This mini-series, branching off of our historical true crime podcast, Old Timey Crimey, is about a very specific type of murder, a location-dependent one. The location is ostensibly a romantic, even a sexy one. Lover's Lane. Fogged-up windows, close quarters, sweating, moaning, whispering promises on hot, ragged breath. The thing about Lover's Lane murders, as we see from this first one, is that there are so many possible, wildly varying motives that it gets really tricky. Robbery and extortion, jealousy and obsession, insanity, and they all lead to different types of suspects, naturally. There's also the fact that, by their very nature, these crimes happen in a very secluded location. That's what draws all the involved parties, victims and perpetrator, to the scene in the first place. We're all here for different reasons, but aren't we also here for the same reason? Privacy? Hey, it's Old Timey Crimey presents the Murders on Lover's Lane (laughs) miniseries. I'm Christy. And I'm Amber. And we are going to start in 1925 with a series of murders that 
terrorized the Midwest. I mean, people were losing their damn minds. <laughs> You're going to see how much people were losing their damn minds. Then we're going to jump after this series of murders to 1930, where another series of murders terrorized the inhabitants of Queens, New York. It seemed like an entirely different murderer. But was it? Yeah, probably. It, it probably was. <laughs> maybe not. Maybe, maybe not. They have enough similarities between them that it's worth looking at and, yes, arguing about, which we will do. I would like to stress, first and foremost, that these are, and this is capitalized here, unsolved murders. We are almost definitely, certainly not going to solve anything here. I, we would love it if we could. That would be amazing. We would do anything to make that happen as we go along here, but we have to be realistic. Everyone directly involved is, and I'm very sorry to spoil this for you, dead. Yeah, I mean, a hundred years or so will do that for you. And with everybody being pretty much over the age of 20, a lot of the participants were young and unmarried, so did not have children yet. So even, you know, they didn't even have any offspring to continue, you know, the hunt, you know, grandchildren, any of that. All the evidence and eyewitnesses, pretty much gone. That evidence, even if it wasn't thrown away long ago, again, it's been about a hundred years, probably deteriorated, degraded, and uh, DNA, we're talking about the same with that. So, you know, just take your bar, and if you would, please set it at a reasonable level. That's like all we ask. the floor. The floor would be nice. I do like to hold ourselves to a higher standard, so maybe an inch off the floor. Maybe just an inch. Three quarters. Okay, is, is that like Bumble? Is that what we're on? Like an inch off the floor? What is it, Bumble? I think it's like a dating. Why are we using dating apps? We're both married. <laughs> we shouldn't be using that Never as a metaphor for anything. That. I don't even know if it's a dating app. No, you can leave that in. I'm leaving that in. <laughs> so you gotta you gotta lower the expectations on the dating app <laughs> and the, the crime solving. There you go. There you go. Okay, sure, sure. That works. That works. I think that's what the, the hip kids are doing now. The hip kids? I'm, they're probably also using the word hip. I can almost guarantee I it. I bet. I mean, they're dressing like it's the 80s, so <laughs> I'm just going to sure. bring it back. So if you're on this Murders on Lovers Lane channel, and this is your first time hearing of us, you can also find us many, many episodes on our main channel, Old Timey Crimey. It's a little bit different than this. It's mostly standalone episodes with a couple of multi-parters, Jack the Ripper, uh, Lizzie Borden, you know, usually it's big famous ones like that, but there are a couple of smaller cases that ended up being multi-parters, like, uh, I'm going to warn you, this case. Oops. <laughs> spoiler alert. Yeah, yeah, spoiler there. We also have uh, different eras. Uh, there's the Christian Scott era. Scott was my original co-host. Uh, those are episodes 1 to 43. And then Amber joined us for episode 44 and stuck around. She just landed here and uh, plopped down and then never left. And <laughs> never, we were fine with ever. that. I moved in with Christy. She does not like it. <laughs> she just lives here now. She was just like, I'm going to talk to you guys about a guy who ate everything. And then I'm never going to leave. Yep. That's what happened. Yeah. That was from episodes 44 to 121. And uh, after that, it was just me and Amber. 
for uh, then, then until now. Yep, I still live here. And that's the game plan. If you want, you can go find us there. It's different vibes throughout. I think, you know, the dynamic changes. So you just kind of jump around and see what you like. I think there's something for everybody, really. And if you want even more of us, plus a very special bonus, limited time only while we are doing this mini-series, you can get early access to the Murders on Lovers Lane episodes before they're released. Come on over to our Patreon. That is patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey where you can hear these episodes early and also get bonus episodes of Old Timey Crimey for just $5 a month. Give it a shot. You get a free trial for seven days. Um, uh, but if you're listening to this episode on the day it releases, wait a week because these episodes release every two weeks. So like, give me a little bit of time to get the next episode out there. That's, uh, that's all my preamble. And uh, Amber, I do believe that we need to settle down in Fort Wayne, Indiana in 1925 and talk about some people who lived there. Indeed. One of the most frustrating names that we've come across. Not the most, but one of. One of. Yes, one of. Uh, Catherine, or Catherine, or Catherine. Spelled three different ways. Yes. Agnes Herbers. Or Herber. Or, yes, yes. Uh... Born in 1898 in Esterwegen, which is in Lower Saxony in Germany. Her parents are Bernard and Mary, and Catherine was the eldest of four siblings, Nicholas, Marie, and Bernard. The family came to America via New York in October 1907, so Catherine was just nine when that happened. As for her hometown back in Germany, Less than 30 years after leaving it, Estervegan would be home to a concentration camp. Ooh. Yeah, not, not pretty. And was for a time the second largest concentration camp after Dachau. Wow. Yeah. Uh, the, it did close in 1936 and thereafter became a prison for like political prisoners, resistance fighters and such. So still did kill them, you know. Still. I was going to say, well, it was kind of a prisoner for the Jewish people first. So, I mean, like, it's set it's, up that way. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's, it was still ready for that particular purpose. And just to get a view for, for how these rabbit holes happen, I'm really into doing my family tree for the past couple of years. And uh, I have some family that came from Germany quite a bit, actually. And I was like, oh... Gee whiz, I wonder if they came from anywhere around that area. Gee whiz? Yeah, gee whiz is exactly what I said. Gee willikers. Gee willikers, yeah, Amber. You're going to make fun of me for saying hip. Hey, I own. Gee willikers. I own my stodgy geekness. <laughs> Proudly. So I said gee willikers. I wonder. And uh, so I, I checked it out, and that's how I discovered uh, that Esther Vegan had had a concentration camp. So sometimes my rabbit holes are the result of my pure, unmitigated self-absorption. Okay. Yeah, very exciting. Back to the Herbers family. By the 1920s, Catherine's father had sadly passed at age 48, but the rest of the family was intact and living in Fort Wayne, Indiana, in the Westfield neighborhood. The family went to... The St. Mary's Catholic Church, uh, which had a school associated with it, the St. Mary's School, and Catherine graduated from there in the commercial department. 
commercial department. I feel like that's kind of uh, stenography and like preparing girls for whatever career they have in the business world or the, you know, merchant world before getting married. Okay. Which, you know, is kind of the idea. Okay. So is the other one like the residential department where they just learn how to cook and clean and darn? Probably. Yeah. Okay. She did that, and then she did manage to get a job. Uh, She was working as a waitress for the Metro Candy Company. And uh, really, candy companies, there were so many candy companies. You see so many want ads for for women to work at candy companies that you start to wonder if there's some sort of a scam going on, and this is the cover for it. I feel like that's how you human traffic young girls. It really is honestly kind of scary. For some reason, a lot in the Boston papers, I've noticed. Hmm. So that is Catherine. Now we're going to talk about a young man named Howard Fisher. He was born in 1902. His parents were Peter and Mary Fisher. He had two older brothers, so as opposed to Catherine being the eldest, he was the youngest. His brothers were Sebastian, but he went by Harry. I know. That's not even close. I'm looking down on him for that choice. I think maybe might have been a middle name. But honestly, Sebastian is, in my opinion, the better name. I apologize to any Harrys out there, but it's just my opinion. And uh, Denver, which is... I would expect to see that in, like, current times, not so much the 1920s. Yeah, that's a strikingly millennial name, like something millennials would name their children. Yeah, like, (laughs) you would go to Denver for pot. (laughs) Yes, absolutely you would. Denver's your dealer. Yeah. (laughs) And so they all lived together in a small home around East Central Fort Wayne. Howard, once he graduated, he first worked as a truck driver. And then he worked at the rolling mills as a mechanic. Now, his brother was in charge of the shop there. He had also been helping his brother, Harry, with a political campaign. And he's a politician, and you're not going to use the name Sebastian. Right. For a politician. Maybe he felt it, like, was childish or something. Oh, yeah, so Harry is, yeah, whatever, okay. Yeah, I guess. Harry's a man's name, because men are hairy? I I I bet one of his brothers would often call him Sebastard. (laughs) Oh, God. Okay, so yeah, my last name is Baxter, and there definitely was somebody, just one person, thankfully, who teased me on the playground and called me Christy Bastard. Yeah, so I'm guessing Sebastard didn't like that nickname, and so he just went by his middle name or whatever. Can't blame him. On May 5th, 1925, Catherine went to work. Then she went on her lunch break to see a friend. They had lunch. And then her friend, who worked for a beauty salon, marcelled Catherine's hair. She gave her some nice curls. Her friend said that Catherine was in the best of spirits. Then she returned to work, Catherine did, where she stayed until the newspaper. This is my first reference to the newspaper that is now my mortal enemy. 6 or 11 p.m. Oh, that's, they're the same thing. Very much the same, yes. Time has no meaning. And that was within the same article, by the way. Oh, man. Yeah. Uh, and then her... Hold on. I, so I, I have a couple things here. Sure. One, the amount of detail that you found is awesome. And I feel like you also know what she ordered for lunch. And I'm curious. <laughs> I do not, actually. Um, second, I really, really want to know 
How long was her damn lunch break that she could go out to eat and then get her hair did and then go to work? Because I want those lunch breaks. I do want those lunch breaks too, but I do feel like maybe like they had sandwiches together at her friend's house. And since her friend had all the hair supplies, she just like marcelled her hair there. I don't know for sure. Mayhaps. Either way, it does take some time to... Make food, eat food, and then get your hair done. It does. Absolutely. I agree. It does seem like she had a nice, comfortably long lunch break. Yeah, because my lunch breaks are usually uh, turning my camera off and eating on mute. <laughs> I feel like that's a lot of my lunch breaks. The world uh, very much appreciates you putting yourself on mute. Uh, and if anybody who doesn't put themselves on mute when they eat, listen to this. We're telling you. Put yourself on mute. Please. Also, turn your camera off. I don't want to see it either. Yeah, that too. Catherine's friend said that Catherine was in the best of spirits that day. So she went back to work. And then when her shift ended, her boyfriend, one Howard Fisher, oh, we know that young gentleman, picked her up. He was 23 and she was 26. The newspapers give completely different ages for I them. I noticed that. Yes, but those are their ages according to their birth dates given by Find a Grave, so that's what I went with. So I, I had the same issue because I was I was certain that I found Howard's Find a Grave, but then I was like, but all the newspapers are saying that he was two years older than Catherine, in which case there is no grave. So I was super confused by that. And it does track that he is actually younger, but the newspapers didn't want to make it seem like inappropriate. They had been seeing each other for just over a year. They had met at a dance on May 4th, 1924. So this is just a couple days after their anniversary. Aww. And this is from her diary. Damn! Yeah, I met Howard at a dance. He took me home and asked to call on me. Aw, it's so proper, asked to call on me. It is so proper. And this from the Fort Worth News Sentinel, damn them to hell, Fisher had been in the habit of calling for her and taking her home. No other man had ever gone with the girl since Fisher started going with her about a year ago. They quoted the proprietor of the candy store for that. So that's where they're getting their information. And then they would also spend their one night off a week together, too. So they spent, like, all their time together. Which is quite sweet. They're very much attached to one another. Um, in, yes, I am, I'm going to get progressively more bitter towards this newspaper. Trust me that I have very, very good reason to want to track down the reporter who wrote these articles and spit on their grave. I have my reasons. You'll find out. It's also her employer who tells us that they had been engaged for nine months. That seems like uh, it's not corroborated by literally anyone else. You know what, though? So he might have the timeline that I have, as we found out in our our tiny, that uh, three days and several weeks are the same thing to Amber. I mean, it really could just be he's bad at time. It could be, but it wasn't even necessarily that they hadn't been engaged nine months, but that they weren't really actually engaged. But they were gonna be. Gonna be engaged and engaged are are definitely different states of being. (laughs) 
The salon employee, who was Catherine's very close friend, said she didn't know anything about an engagement. She just said, well, you know, they're always together. But no, no engagement. In her diary, Catherine did talk about how she hoped to marry Howard. They did talk about marriage and, you know, her family members and and, and her diary mentioned that. But they hadn't set a date. They hadn't made anything official. There was no, no ring or any, you know, no proposal, nothing like that. It, it was just kind of like an undercurrent. It was in the works, but wasn't official. The candy shop owner also said that before Howard had come along, Catherine had the usual number of dates that girls tended to have, but they seemed to be casual things like a movie here, a soda there. Quote, he had known Fisher since he was a small lad and he had always been a hard-working, steady-going sort. He was just a nice young fella. Nice young fella. The type you want to settle down with. I want to know what the average number of dates is for a young girl. I'm curious about that. What is the average number of movie here, soda there? Yeah, I don't know exactly. I mean, I do believe that it's changed a lot in the intervening century. Probably decreased. Simply because there's less actual dating going on. Well, yeah. So back in in this time period, it was very much you date. You don't do anything really physical. I don't even think hand-holding most of the time. Mm -hmm. But you actually go out and court each other and get to know each other. And and dating now is are we sexually compatible and then go from there. So it's really flipped on its head from what it used to be. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But the candy shop owner said that after Howard came along, there were no more... No more soda here's. No more movie there's. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. And the diary backed that up, too. He would also, Howard, come to see Catherine at mealtimes, too. I mean, they really were always together. That's very sweet. They're that cute, cute couple. If you go over to our old-timey, crimey feed and look for the orphan millionaire... Uh, there was another love story that didn't end so happily there that was like that, too, that was very much like, oh, what a cute couple. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he would pick her up. He would take her home. I'm sure they, you know, like dawdled on the way home like a cute little couple would because they just can't stand any time apart. Holding hands and kicking rocks. <laughs> yes. The next night, Wednesday, May 6th, Howard came to pick Catherine up for a night of what the newspapers call auto-riding. Okay. So we're going to get in the car and go just drive around, which was a night back then. That was a thing to do at night. But the thing was, he was a little late arriving. Apparently, when he arrived, she confronted him and he said, Well, I'm sorry, I fell asleep after dinner. And, you know, that's relatable. Been there, Howard. Been there. (laughs) I can't say that I've been there, but I can say that I definitely want to be there often. If I dare lie down on the couch after dinner, I wake up at 9 o'clock. Confused about what day it is, whether it's morning or night, (laughs) why I'm here, where here is, etc. He's not dressed in his best, as the newspaper points out, slightly judgingly. He's just in Quote, working trousers, a red sweater, and a khaki overcoat, which is still better dressed than most people these days. And he was just laughing and joking with her mother while he waited for her to get ready. What's that look for? 
I'm I'm just like, how is that not well dressed? Like, cause he's he not didn't in have a, a suit. I guess. Yeah. Like <laughs> he didn't come over for a night of auto riding in his tuxedo. You want to be comfortable when you're driving a car. You take a road trip. You're not gonna get gussied up in your church clothes. Like, <laughs> what? I don't understand. It was even said that he was in unusually good spirits that night as well. Everybody's in some kind of spirits, usually good. They use that phrase a lot in the uh, abominable Fort Worth News Sentinel. They're going to hate me, <laughs> the newspaper. I want to make sure they know it's not the current them, although their website could use, just get more servers or something. Like, make it faster. Just make it faster. So it is them. Just their internet part. Yeah, it, it's them. I'm sure the journalists that currently work there are fine and whatever. But the journalists that worked there in 1925 needed to go back to journalism school and learn how not to repeat themselves and what burying a lead is. Anyhow. You hear that, reporters? You're fine or whatever. So there was a reason for his good spirits. Remember that campaign he was working on for his brother? Mm-hmm. Well, it was a nomination uh, his brother wanted for the sixth ward ticket in the Republican Party's primary for councilman. And his brother had won it. Oh, wonderful. That's a big victory. They were pretty excited. And so this from the <clears throat> new Sentinel, she said, injecting as much anger into her voice as possible, saying they were going for a drive and promising to bring her sister Marie a barbecue sandwich, Miss Herbers left with Fisher. Marie, a 20-year-old sister of the girl, told detectives at the home this morning that Fisher and Catherine had never quarreled, although now and then he became peeved over trivial subjects. She said last night her sister had become slightly angry because Fisher had not arrived at the home by 9 o'clock and the girl believed he should have called her earlier if he didn't intend to keep his date. She said, however, that her sister and her sweetheart left home apparently in the best of spirits. The girl saying they were just going to drive out and get a barbecue sandwich somewhere. Is that a thing? Like, I don't think I've ever left the house. Like, mm, I'm just going to go get myself a barbecue sandwich. I mean, we have friends who literally almost every night are like, anyone want to go get ice cream? In the summertime. That's true. That's true. I mean, you get your late night cravings so, on. Is is a barbecue sandwich? It's the 1925 ice cream. Yeah. Apparently. Okay. Yeah. I kind of want a barbecue sandwich now. <laughs> I am starving. I am too. <laughs> we are always hungry when we record. Why is that? Why do we bring up food? I don't know. Because it's in the story. Damn it. So something was sitting on Catherine's dressing table that was later taken note of. It was a letter. A letter she had received from a fortune teller regarding her future. This letter said that Catherine's luckiest day of the month was the 7th, which would be the next day. Other predictions said that she would marry in 15 weeks or so, have two children, and she would go on a long journey in 1926, which would be her most eventful year. As for how her life would end, the letter proclaimed that she would die under good circumstances. Nobody dies under good circumstances. I'm I sure mean, that that's what we all want to hear. Quietly, peacefully, surrounded by your family with no pain. It's rare, very rare, unfortunately. A couple people get it. Yeah. A couple people get it. 
It's likely to me that Catherine had written to someone who advertised in a magazine or a newspaper, you know, in order to get this fortune. You know, 10 cents, accurate fortunes promised, your love life, your family life, your social life. I really, I hope it was a weird one that they're like, okay, so 10 cents, a lock of your hair, a fingernail, a drop of blood. I like that. A baby tooth if you have it. <laughs> like just something like bizarre. Send me all these weird parts of your body and I will tell you what's going to happen to you. I like that and it makes sense, but it's even better if it's random weird stuff that's not even related to you. Like a clipping of squirrel's fur. I like it. <laughs> all right. So if I, I almost wish that people would read the newspaper because we could do an ad. We could. Now we just have to put it on Craigslist. Is that still around? It's still around. You just can't put like sexual stuff and... You know, I'm sure it's still in there. You just need to know where to look. <laughs> you just need to know the codes, I'm sure. <laughs> what are the code words? It was around 9 p.m. when Catherine and Howard left Catherine's house in Howard's car. Around 11 p.m., they stopped at an abandoned schoolhouse. Said abandoned schoolhouse had been the scene of what was back in the day called petting parties. <laughs> so, you know, people getting a little frisky in cars, things getting a little hot and heavy in a remote location. So a deputy sheriff was keeping an eye on the area and he shooed them away. There was another car there at the same time and the deputy told them to scram as well, you know, get lost, skedaddle, the moose, get some time passed. Back at the Herbers' home, Mama Herbers and uh, 20-year-old Marie were waiting up. And this again from the News Sentinel. Upon the girl's failure to return at midnight, which Marie declared unusual, the mother became worried. Marie comforted her by telling her not to worry, as Catherine and Howard probably had experienced a breakdown in his car. And Marie is right. At this point, you start hoping for some annoyance or inconvenience to be the reason behind your child's lateness. You're trying to ignore and push aside the thoughts of tragedy and loss that are very softly, for the moment, knocking at the door. Slowly getting louder and louder and louder. It was probably a sleepless night for Mama Herbers and likely uh, Mama Fisher as well. Early in the morning, around about 6 a.m. on May 7th, 1925, on Hessen Castle Road, alternately depending on which section of the article you read, either three quarters of a mile from the city or three miles from the city, who knows? about three miles from the schoolhouse, they were found in Howard's automobile parked on the side of the road. It was Fred Horner who found them. He lived on that road. The two of them had both been dead about four to five hours when they were discovered. Someone who lived nearby said he'd driven down the road and seen an automobile parked in that same spot in the same fashion around 1130 the previous night, so they're thinking the murders happened before midnight, especially since the witness said the man in the car had been leaning on the steering wheel while the woman had been on the far side of the seat, which 
pretty well lined up with how Howard and Catherine were found in the morning. Also, judging by the times that were given by other witnesses who saw them in the area, specifically the deputy who shooed them away from that schoolhouse, that would have been shortly after they arrived at what would become the scene of their murder. What a shame, though. I mean, they were shooed away from one place to their death. Yeah, I know. If they had just been allowed to stay at that one place, especially since there was another car there who would have been potential witnesses to anyone else. Unless that was the person that followed them. Unless that was the person that followed them. So either they were shooed away from a place that would have become their death site anyhow, only to, to be murdered somewhere else. So basically the same result either way. Or they were shooed away from what would have been a safe place only to find the site of their murder, mm-hmm. one way or the other. It's interesting, though. There are some layers underneath the things that I'm telling you right now that um, I'm sorry to tell you we won't get into until the second episode. <laughs> but there's a few layers underneath that add some complexity and some more questions and some curiosity to this that are really intriguing, I have to say. Um, sometimes infuriating, but, you know, in the fun way. <laughs> in the fun way that Christy likes. So they also find a woman who lived in the neighborhood who heard three gunshots that night. The first two were together, close together, and the third was at a short interval. Finally, they settle on 11.20 p.m. as the time of the murders. They start looking around the scene to try and figure out, get a sense of what happened here at least develop some theories. Now the keys were on the floor of the car, which was a coupe. The lights were ablaze, leading to the assumption that the car had been parked there when something happened, you know, that kept the couple from returning home, namely their death. Yeah, that'll do it. That will, that will do, yeah, that'll, that'll do it. A window on the passenger side uh, of the car was broken out. Even the frame was gone. It must've been an old timey car thing. (laughs) Where <laughs> you could die. I don't know. Hmm. Yeah. Maybe the, the window was attached to the frame differently than how we have things today. I have no idea. I imagine they didn't have safety glass back then. So maybe it was somehow related to that. Like it was probably like either glass glass or something. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. One thing that drove me crazy. This was my first moment of no seriously screw this newspaper. They said a uh, window was broken out on the left side of the car. And I was like... Looking at it which way? Like, exactly my point. <laughs> that's why we don't do that. Exactly my point. I was sitting there, I was like, but no, that's, that doesn't clear up anything. That doesn't tell me anything, literally. <laughs> like if you're facing the front of the car or the back of the car. Because it could change. That's why we say driver's side, passenger side, because that is clear. Mm-hmm. I wasn't able to clear that up until looking at the next day's article. It's a whole thing. Anyhow, Howard was hunched over the wheel. Catherine was slumped against the seat in the corner. Like I said, that pretty much matched up with what the witness who'd driven past had seen the night before around 1130. They were both shot through the head. Two shots to Howard, one shot to Catherine, and those were all the shots fired. There were no misfired shots in the body of the car or anything like that. 
And again, that matches up with the witness who heard two separate shots. and then Tap, tap. Yeah. Tap. Exactly. Now, Howard had one bullet into the left eye and one right below the left ear lodged in his brain. Catherine had been shot through the left side of her head near the top. The other way that we know that no shots were fired, in addition to there not being any in the body of the car or anything, is because the gun was found on the scene. It was a 38 caliber pistol, and they found it resting in Catherine's lap on her left knee. Her hand wasn't necessarily grasping it. It was more like just gently resting on it, not holding on or anything. And we also know that the shots could not have been fired from her side of the car where the broken window was because the shots are on the other side of the body. They're on the left side of the body. Not technically the right where the broken window is. Then this happens. That's all the evidence we're going to get from the car. That's all. There could be more. There could. But we're not going to get it because this from the news sentinel. The death car. (laughs) The death car. The death car was brought into the OK Garage, Maumee Avenue. The OK Garage? The OK Garage. Right across the street from Mediocre Burgers. (laughs) Right next to the mundane gas station. (laughs) Who names this shit? Down the street is the banal convenience store. (laughs) Where you can buy the most generic chips ever. The death car was brought into the OK Garage, Mommy Avenue, this morning, where the dead man had always kept it. Completely covered inside with blood, garage men started cleaning it, although no orders to that effect were issued. And I just, it's going to be easy to remember this garage because we've made fun of it, and I appreciate that. So do remember the OK Garage. So, and it's on Mommy Avenue, and I'm wondering if Daddy Avenue is nearby and what you find at the corner. No, it, it is spelled M-A-U-M-E-E, but nope, yes. No, don't care. That is weird. Maybe it's pronounced Malmy. I don't nope, know. No, don't care. We it's, don't care. It's yeah. Mommy Avenue. <laughs> yeah. Daddy so, issues are just around the corner. So, yes, that is uh, pretty infuriating that there could have been more evidence, but it was taken there. So, just... It reminds me of the case, I don't know if you remember this one, where the murder weapon was like a lead pipe and it was in the silverware drawer and a police officer took the murder weapon to hit at something in the wall and dropped the murder weapon down inside the wall where it stayed for several years. That's this level of duncery. Like... You have a car filled with blood. You put it somewhere so it can be kept. And then somebody's just like, I don't know. I guess we should clean it. Yeah. Part of the reason that the car was taken to the garage, or so we're told later, is because the first theory that the police come up with is murder-suicide. So they're thinking, well, if it's a murder-suicide... You know, when the the car arrives at the garage, the idea is we don't need anything out of this car anymore because there's nothing to do here. So easy peasy, our jobs are done, la la la. So they think we've got two people dead, a couple, maybe there was an argument that went too far, maybe they had a pact, something along those lines. But really, they look at the scene for just a couple minutes and they are able to rule that out. 
based on the position of the bodies and locations of the bullet wounds. I mean, they don't think murder-suicide for very long. It's a minute or two. Howard could not have shot himself in the brain twice. One shot, and he would have been dead in an instant. And the coroner confirms that. Catherine, if she had shot him, would have had to reach around Howard's face and held the gun at an incredibly awkward angle to shoot him. I love it when I try to demonstrate with my hands for you, because obviously I'm not doing it for the audience. Yeah, they can't see you. They can't see, but I'm holding my hand out like a gun and my hand at a weird angle that I'm making weirder by the second. They were both shot from the left side. Neither of them, and this was confirmed by their families, neither of them were left-handed. We talked about this before we even started. (laughs) I am left-handed. I do nearly everything right-handed. And back then, you could have the left-handedness beaten out of you or, you know, have your left hand tied behind your back until you always wrote with your right hand Mm -hmm. or whatever. But you could still have that left-handedness. But their families both said, no, neither of them were left-handed. Both had powder burns near the gunshot wounds. Howard's face, in particular, had bad burns on the whole left side. And also, just like Howard's, Catherine's death, would have been nearly instantaneous. She was found with her left hand resting on the gun. If she'd shot herself with her right hand, her dominant hand, she wouldn't have had any time or ability to switch the gun to her left hand before perishing. Also, she was shot on the top of her head. That's a weird, awkward place to shoot yourself. And then, on top of her head and on top of the bullet wound was her hat with no holes or powder burns in it. Yes. That pretty much rules any of that out. So somehow, she uh, picked up her hat with her right hand, took her left hand, wrapped it around the top of her head to shoot herself at a different angle, and then rest the gun and her hand in the lap, place the hat back on her head, and put the other hand in her lap. So possible. Entirely possible. Yes, definitely. (laughs) If she decided to turn into a zombie for about 30 seconds after dying. It could be like a chicken. I mean, that happens all the time. Because, I mean, you can cut the the head off a chicken and it still goes for a while. I mean, people like chickens. We're like chickens in many ways. We're flightless birds. We are flightless (laughs) birds. That is accurate. We are flightless birds. Uh, I bet we taste delicious fried. Also, since we've established... I bet we do. Also, since we've established that this was not a murder-suicide. They were both murdered. That meant the killer took her hat off her head, shot her, and then put the hat back on her head. Which is just strange. Strange, and also, could we please not dress people after murdering them? It's just creepy. We could stop the murdering, too. That'd be great. I mean, that should be the priority. Like, both of them we can stop, but it's just so creepy. But at least that one was putting an article on... Well, yeah, it could have been a lot worse. Speaking of which, oh, good. Well, no, yeah, yeah. It was pointed out multiple times in the early articles how Catherine's clothes were quote unquote disarranged. I guess the murderer's idea was to make it look more like she struggled with Howard before shooting him, or because in reality, another terrible thing happened to her in addition to being shot. She didn't have any blood on her hands, but bloody fingerprints were found on her body. Now, initially, the newspapers were really skittish about being specific here. 
the wording used is bloody fingerprints showed on Miss Herber's body when it was brought to this city, which made me think it was on skin and not clothing. And then the next day it comes out that yes, the detectives and the coroner do think she was sexually assaulted either before or just after her death. Judging by their supposition of how this all happened, which I'm going to get into in a second, it would have had to happen afterwards because if their idea, their reconstruction of the events is accurate, it happened too quickly. Well, so yeah, even with the gunshots that we heard, the the too fast and then a short break and then one. There's no time. There was no time. I mean, I've heard of people that are very quick to fire their, uh, but um, th- That's, there would not still be enough, not enough time. Yeah. So this is their reconstruction of the, the scene. Detectives reenacting the scene showed how a man or woman approaching from the left side of the car would jerk open the left door. Fisher's natural reaction would be to look out the open door. As he looked out, he was shot point blank in the left eye at short range, his face about the eye being badly powder burned. At the shot, Miss Herbers instinctively ducked and the second shot caught her in the left side of the head near the top of the skull and within the edge of the hair above the left eye. Falling forward across the steering wheel, Fisher's body moved, either from the fall or from contraction of the muscles. Believing him not dead, the slayer fired another shot into Fisher's brain, the bullet entering naturally just below the left ear as he lay across the steering wheel. Fisher's face was... Bride in the steering wheel when the couple was found. B-R-I-E-D-E. Bride. Okay. Dr. Harry Irwin, coroner, conducted a post-mortem over the bodies late Thursday. He declared today the enactment of the crime is accurate from the course of the bullets in the brains of both Miss Herbers and Fisher. The bullet entering Miss Herbers' brain ranged to the right and slightly downward, and the wound was at a point in direct line of fire from the left door of the car. Man, they really can't decide with this whole left-right thing. Because the window that was broken out was the left window, but that ended up being on the passenger side. The left door is on the driver's side. Now, we start asking around specifically about a gun. Because we have the gun, uh, but we got to find who it belongs to. That would really help here. Both victims' families say that neither victim ever owned a gun. So the gun found in the car, according to the new Sentinel, was never owned by either of the two persons or their near relatives. And uh, little sister Marie claimed this morning that there had never been a gun around the house and that her sister would never have committed suicide. They also are looking at people around the two families. There were three men rooming at the Herbers' home. All three say they have no gun. The Fishers do own a 32 caliber revolver. Harry had bought it for his mother for protection. They produced it for detectives when requested. The thing about this is that the detectives are asking about a gun that is in their own possession. It's pretty easy to deny that you have a 38 caliber when the cops themselves have it. Never seen it. I never saw it. I don't have that gun. They do try to track down the manufacturer, but that's a bust. 
as the company has been out of business for 14 years. Oh. It, they ask around at local stores. Nobody can identify the weapon as having been sold there. There's no mention, so far as I can see, of any sort of attempts to fingerprint it or anything. They are, I know, uh, trying to fingerprint Catherine's compact that was found in her purse, which has a bloody fingerprint on the mirror, but it is smudged and therefore useless. They even asked Catherine's boss if she could have gotten a gun from the store. And he said, nope, I don't keep any guns here. It's, it's weird because there are many articles where it seems like there's this sort of denialism in place as to a woman being able to shoot a man. But there's also articles where there, there seems to be a denial that Howard could have shot Catherine, <laughs> as far as the murder-suicide theory goes. Even though the murder-suicide theory is thrown out so quickly, anytime it's brought up, it seems to have been Catherine shooting Howard, maybe because he was shot twice? I don't know. Probably. I mean, it's, it's really easy to just be like, well, two gunshots, he definitely didn't do it. Yeah, and I get that. It's just so strange that, like, the sexism somehow still comes into play. It still does. Yeah. And of course, as far as the, you know, the murder or the suicide is concerned, you have both the families saying, you know, no way, no how. Our, our child would not do that. Quote, the mother of Howard, as well as the father, was grief-stricken this morning, stoutly maintaining that their son could never have killed himself and certainly never anyone else. The mother, through tears and a voice strained to a breaking point, sobbed. All the people in Fort Wayne could never make me believe that my son killed himself. She's not wrong. She's not wrong at all, no. That is the first theory, and it gets thrown out pretty quickly. The second theory is, of course, the jealous lover theory. And when they say jealous lover back then, it can mean anything from an actual lover, or even, you know, just an admirer from a distance, to a literal psychotic stalker. It's the same thing to them. It literally is the same thing to them. So just keep that in mind. So they're like, okay, so maybe Catherine had like a lover or an admirer, somebody who trailed them from her house when they left. Maybe this person found out about the upcoming nuptials that nobody but the candy shop owner knew about, and it drove them to violence. Again, women can also be jealous <laughs> and can also shoot guns. <laughs> yes, you are correct. But despite that, detectives start only looking for young male acquaintances of Catherine. And so uh, that kind of... I would say it fizzles out. It pops back up here and there. Throughout the investigation, we see occasionally a young man will pop up who, you know, crossed her path or something. So just hold on to that one because it occasionally shows its head. But they move on pretty quickly to the final theory, which is robbery. And that's basically that somebody came upon them while they were parked. And, you know, this is a stick up. Give me all your money. Give me all your jewelry. The usual. So when she left home, Catherine did have some money on her. We know this because of Marie, her little sister. 
Marie also said her sister had shown her two $1 bills and some change, which she put into her pocketbook before leaving the house. When found this morning by the coroner, her pocketbook contained no money. End quote from the New Sentinel. Hmm. Mm. I'm sorry, I didn't hiss it. The New Sentinel. There you go. That's better. <laughs> That's better. But yeah, so even though the money was gone... Doesn't necessarily mean that's the motive. It just means they made it look like the motive. Exactly. Anytime money and valuables are gone, that could always be a cover motive. Yeah, I'm here. I might as well. I already did all this other stuff. Exactly. May as well make a little profit, you know? Now, Howard's parents didn't know whether he had any money when he left or not. He didn't tend to carry large amounts, but he also didn't tend to walk around with empty pockets either. Catherine's handbag is found in the car. In addition to money being missing from specifically her pocketbook, there was also another small purse or pocketbook completely missing from it. She's also missing a ring. It does look like Howard's pockets have been rifled and they're empty. There's nothing found in them. And again, both of their clothes have been disarranged. So that whole disarranging of the clothes also, you know, aside from whether or not a sexual assault happened, could have also come from trying to find cash, coins, jewelry. Or just really liking playing with bodies. Or just that, yeah. Uh, in addition to all of that, and here's a curious one, they found in the death car, as they continue to call it, a woman's hat that did not belong to Catherine. In the back seat, I believe it was. Yeah, also, not a lot of ladies wearing two hats on an evening out. Yeah, I mean, it could... Could be from a previous time, but it was not hers. It was not hers. It could have been... He didn't have any sisters. His mother's, maybe, but one would think that she would have recognized it. Um, a cousin? Just a friend. Could have been a friend. I mean, I don't... We yeah, don't know. but if it was, I think they would have come forward and been like, no, that's my hat. Right? Somebody could have come forward. So with all this in mind, police are finally on the hunt for a woman. They're thinking about it, but they have no particular details to guide them. So it's pretty much just any woman. <laughs> Which, you know, isn't everybody. <laughs> They do start getting a little specific with what they're looking for as far as the idea of robbery is concerned. That's because there's been a little rash of burglaries in the area. And it seems like the suspect rides a bicycle. So they've started calling him the Bicycle Bandit. And, uh... Sometimes he would strike cars, actually, people who were out there parking. He would demand cash and jewelry, threatening to expose the couple for what they were doing. You naughty lovebirds are out here necking and petting. I'm going to tell the world because everybody will believe me, Jim Random, out here on the road in the dark. Sometimes he would... Uh, sexually harass and even uh, assault the women. This, again, from the News Sentinel. Bicyclist is sought. 
Tuesday night, a couple in a parked car on the Hessen Castle Road were held up and robbed of all their valuables. That is the same road, uh, just to remind you, where Catherine and Howard were found. The man approached and left on a bicycle, tracks of which were found in the roadway Wednesday morning when detectives investigated. The man pinched the girl and she screamed. You're no good. I don't want you anyway, he said and left. The tracks of a bicycle was found in a small ditch to the right of the place where the Fisher automobile was found parked by detectives who investigated at the scene Thursday. The fact that robbery also has been established lends weight to the belief that the slayer held up Fisher and Miss Herbers and shot Fisher when he showed signs of resistance, criminally attacked Miss Herbers either just before or after she was shot, and then left the gun, probably disarranging the clothing of Fisher to give the impression he had attacked the girl. Here's the thing about those bicycle tracks. They're like, oh, he attacked people up on Hessen Castle Road, and then Wednesday detectives went up and they found the bicycle tracks, and then on Wednesday night, the murder happened. Those bicycle tracks were already there when the murder happened. Yep. And they're about to make a Big flippin' deal about this bicycle bandit and attaching him to these murders. But just keep that in mind. (laughs) They're also, by the way, calling him the moron bandit. So isn't that lovely? That is actually. I enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah. There are also some houses in the area that had been robbed recently. Some of them by someone on a bicycle. Some of them uh, by people in a car. Uh, But there's connections that'll bring those two together eventually. Uh, The witness who heard those gunshots, she also, 15 minutes after the shots, saw a bicyclist riding east past her house and said she'd seen the same man on several other nights. So that's interesting. They did get uh, a description of the bicycle bandit, although it's not clear whether they got it from her or someone else. Maybe one of the people who were robbed or whatever. Riding a red bike, wearing a two-piece overall suit with a white stripe. Uh, There's nothing... I can picture the red bike, but uh, everything else, it's... I'm drawing a blank. Yeah, two-piece overall suit with a white stripe. Yep, nope, nope, I got nothing. So, I'm thinking about all these theories. And all all the maybes. There's so many maybes. Murder, suicide, jealous, lover, robbery by bicycle, bandit, or otherwise. The waters are already just remarkably muddy here. We're looking for a man, probably, but there's a tiny chance we're looking for a woman whose motive may have been jealousy or maybe uh, greed, uh, who shot a gun that's no longer in their possession that was manufactured by a company that went out of business 14 years ago, who was seen by pretty much no one, who was smart enough to stage this uh, at least to look a little bit like a murder-suicide, but not enough to really sell it. There are some things here that give me pause about the different theories. Like, for instance, the jealousy idea. Whether they were in love with Howard or Catherine. You might have known the dominant hand of the object of your affection. Also, why wait a year? I mean, maybe they just fell in love. Or maybe they heard about their quote-unquote engagement from, say, the candy shop owner. Maybe he's got a big fat mouth. Totally possible, totally possible. Or somebody that just happened upon one of them and became obsessed. But 
I don't know. It, it doesn't really track. And then also, if you are like infatuated or in love with one of them, you would have let that one live. There's also sort of a heat of the moment, crime of passion type situation where like it could have been like a red rage where the they don't know what they're doing, quote unquote, in that in that moment and shoot them both just because the rage overcomes them. For some people, especially if, if something is going on mentally, neurons misfiring and all that, it can happen. Yeah. I mean, anything could happen. Certainly. I'm, I'm just saying, I don't think this one is very likely. There was no hesitation really between the shots and they were both killed. So that makes me feel like this was not a jealousy thing. I agree with that. I agree with that. I also don't think it was a robbery, because why would you kill two people for $2 and some change? I also agree with that. At least not a robbery by somebody who's actually out there for greed. Because, like, look at things like kleptomania. You know, somebody just steals, like, lighters from a convenience store, or, you know, a bag of chips or something, or a a cheap bracelet from Claire's or whatever. Stealing for the thrill of it. Yeah. You know? So... You know, but there are also, there's just so many butts. There's so many butts. This is the case of many butts, okay? There's just far too many motives and everything. So the, I do think the cops have a lot on their hands. And I do understand that the journalists trying to track this case had a, a lot to deal with. And, you know, they didn't have a lot of our technology and ability to track information. So I can kind of understand why they got uh, repetitive and would put really vital, important information on, you know, page 21 and the continuation of a page one article. In the midst of all this investigation, the families have to move forward with their lives. The funerals are held in the aftermath here. Howard's is at his parents' home on Sunday. Catherine's is on Monday. Visitors stream through both homes. As do sightseers. Of course. Of course. And, quote, at the same time, thousands of motor parties visited the scene of the murder this afternoon, and traffic was congested on all roads leading in the direction of the abandoned schoolhouse. Now, this is a moment when we all need a little something to reinvigorate our faith in humanity. So I have something for you there. Okay. The workers at the rolling mills where Howard worked set up a collection for his mother, quote, as a mark of friendship for the slain boy. Howard's mother heard about this. She called up those in charge of the collection and asked that it be sent to Catherine's mother. Quote, she told those establishing the fund that she had several men in the family to depend on financially, while Miss Herbers was dependent upon herself and her daughters. That is very sweet. That is very sweet and kind and thoughtful, yes. And so as the families are trying to move on, the detectives are trying to move on with the investigation. And so we have assigned two to the case. Detectives Walter Cavanaugh and Peter Junk. Yep. (laughs) And a few more pieces of evidence come straggling out. And they're a little weird. They find some clothing near the scene of the murder the Monday after. A shirt and a pair of trousers, both bloody. That's all the description we're given. Yeah. It's strange. 
they, they sway, the detectives here and the journalists, they go, they sway with the wind. They go where the wind blows. Now they're like, oh, maybe jealous lover. <laughs> you know? Detectives pointed out, says the new sentinel, hmm. that the crime was far more deliberate than those characterizing holdup cases and that the planting of the contradictory evidence was the work of a cool and calm slayer. So they're just back and they're forth and they're back and they're forth and make up your minds. It's all fake. And then finally, as we conclude this episode, we're going to conclude with some weirdness with a car that we're going to pick up with in the next episode. Okay. So this car had been seen the night of the murders, and it would have been about an hour or so after the, the murders would have taken place. This was pretty much across town, seven miles away from the scene on Hench Road. The couple who lived there were called Mr. and Mrs. House. All right. Heard the car pull up in front of their home around midnight, and it was there until Friday night when it moved to Kelly Drive, which is about two and a half blocks away. All right. Now, we're all thinking, who the hell notices this? But 1925, first of all, you probably know whose car is whose on your block, you know? especially in like a suburban type area. And I took a quick look and in 1927, so just two years after that, towns with populations between 50,000 and 100,000, which Fort Wayne would qualify as, it had 86,000 in 1920, had families owning autos at a rate of 57%. So at that rate, you probably know who owns what car. And also a car pulling up to your house around midnight, you might wake up and look outside, oh, who's here, you know? And they were probably a lot louder back then. Yeah, I was going to say, I think any one of us would still do that now. Yeah, so. well, I had uh, my, my Chevy Nova back in uh, the 90s. It was already over a decade old, and the muffler went, my good old supernova. And so I had a, a guy that I dated for a bit of time, and his mother used to tell him I was here because she, very disdainfully, you know, because she heard me coming. <laughs> From several blocks away. As somebody who has lost a muffler, I understand. You know, you know. Yeah, she did not like me. Nobody <laughs> on the street did, probably. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Especially since I worked in a pen comp. So yeah, I worked till 10 p.m. <laughs> so I would go see him after work. Yep, nobody did. So, yeah, I guess that was just a block away from where a relative by marriage of one William Richter lived which is how he found out about it. Now, William Richter, you've met him, but you don't know it. He was the special deputy sheriff who was patrolling the abandoned schoolhouse on Wednesday evening when Catherine and Howard were cruising around looking for alone time. William Richter also ran the OK Garage alongside his Brother. No shit. The strange car found near his relative by marriage's house was taken to the OK garage on Friday night. Because apparently we're still doing that. And next time on the Murders on Lovers Lane, I'm going to tell you why we should not still be doing that. And there are more reasons than you think. Also, okay, I love cliffhangers, but I hate cliffhangers. 
because I am so excited to talk about this and I don't get to for days. Granted, yes, you guys have to wait for longer and I'm sorry, but uh, yeah, I'm all like, Grr, but I'm also like, yay, because uh, my back really hurts from sitting in this chair for an hour and 20 minutes. Yep, yep. So uh, a reminder about the Patreon where you can hear about William Richter and why we shouldn't be taking any cars related to any investigations to his garage early at patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey. And you can also get all of our bonus episodes. Amber told me this week about a case that I actually found in the papers. It was just a paragraph, one single sentence, but it contained so much concentrated what? That she, like, I sent it to our, our group chat and she saw it and she was like, can I do this for a bonus episode? And it seriously was a lot of what? Wait, what? Yeah, what? exactly. Huh? None of that case went the way that it should have. It was no absolutely bonkers. I've, I've never heard a case like that. So, yeah, um, there's so much good stuff. And yeah, come on over. Learn about prison chickens. And you can also get uh, seven days free, uh, free trial. And then you can stick around if you want to, and it's just five bucks a month. You should uh, do it. You should do it. So, uh, we're not going to do any recipes or anything, because this is different from the old-timey crime. We'll get back to that when uh, we re resume our regular episodes on the old-timey crime. Our regularly crime. scheduled programming. Yes. So, uh, next time, we will talk about William Richter and other persons of interest, and how this investigation concluded, and uh, a little bit of what came next, before we dive into the next one. This episode is dedicated to all of our patrons, past and present, because I had to pay for a newspaper subscription to do it. <laughs> so this has been Murders on Lover's Lane. Um, we need a tagline for this. Drive carefully. Okay. Turn on your headlights. Don't forget to turn on your headlights. No, the lights are on in the car. Set the parking brake. That sounds like a euphemism. <laughs> That's why I like it. Don't forget to set your parking brake. <laughs> Bye. My sources are, are the Wikipedia article on Esther Fagan. Newspapers.com. Thank you, Chris Garcia. The Herald Palladium and Clinton Daily Public Daily Sentinel Tribune. Uh, Huntington Herald, Indianapolis Times, Rushville Republican, Reno Gazette Journal, The Star Press, Evansville Press, um, The Find a Grave for Howard and Catherine, uh, Henry Ford's Ghost on Reddit and Rails and Trails, and then also um, thanks to our patrons, the Fort Wayne News. Sentinel. <laughs> You're gonna say it like that every time. Yep. That's why I'm coughing. <laughs> Find a grave in newspapers.com. Thank you, Chris Garcia. Marie, a 20 year old sister of the dead girl. Literally, they say that. Oh, sorry, that's a spoiler. <laughs> okay. I think everybody knows what's gonna happen. Oh, but I hate saying it before it happens. Okay, clap. You clap. Thank you. I'm gonna have to edit the crap out of this.